Isaiah chapter 43, we'll begin at verse 16 and read through verse 28. End of the chapter. Hear the word of God. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing, now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for your own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. For your first father sinned, and your, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Then turning to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. In a broken and fallen world, the very idea of authority frequently carries with it rather negative connotations. Biblical authority is the power to do what God wants. Rebellious authority is the power for evil people to do what they want as though they are not accountable to anyone else. Regrettably, this Abuse of power, this abusive sort of authority, is all too frequently known to people throughout the world today and throughout history. This is the repressive authority that more than a million Chinese Uyghur Muslims are experiencing right now in communist concentration camps. This is the thought of at least potentially harsh authority that many people are experiencing as they flee from tyranny and are entirely dependent upon government officials to tell them 
whether or not they can cross a border, or whether or not they're going to be sent back by those officials to the very people who are oppressing them. This is the sort of wicked, evil authority that is held by President Putin in Russia, by which he both oppresses his own people and is even now devastating the eastern portion of the country of Ukraine. Yes, it's true that the living God has established authorities in this world in order to preserve order, in order to protect and deliver the innocent. In fact, the Lord has established authorities in his church, raising up ordained officers and giving them the authority to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, to admit those people to the Lord's table as communicant members in his church and visible members of his family. God has established authority for good purposes. Nevertheless, when many people think about authority, and particularly great authority in this world, they don't think of authority in terms of someone going to be able to deliver or protect them. They think of authority in oppressive terms. The Jewish people in the first century were very much aware of that sort of authority. After all, they were living under the boot of the Roman Empire. They were an occupied province. They were not free. They longed for the day when their hoped-for Messiah would set them free from Rome. But they were living in oppression. Think back just 30 or so years before this morning's New Covenant reading. Augustus Caesar snaps his fingers, and Joseph has to take his pregnant young bride on a trip to Bethlehem just so they can be numbered in his census to make sure that Caesar isn't missing out on a single shekel of potential tax dollars. How would you like to live under that sort of abuse of authority? Sinful human beings, when they accumulate power, frequently end up abusing it. And then... There is Jesus. Ever since Jesus finished teaching the Sermon on the Mount, his life has been a blaze of miracles. These miracles establish his extraordinary authority. He heals a leper with a touch. He actually heals a multitude of people. Everyone who came to him, we were told earlier in this chapter, he healed them all, demonstrating his absolute authority over human health. And then as he takes a boat across the sea there to go to the other side, a huge storm rages. And Jesus simply stands up and rebukes the storm. And the winds and the waves grow silent, demonstrating Jesus' absolute and unquestioned authority over nature. And on the other side of the lake, Jesus casts out a legion of demons, demonstrating his absolute authority over the powers of darkness. Nevertheless, in spite of the fact that Jesus possesses the most astonishing authority that the world has ever seen, nevertheless, and I ask this question reverently, what good does it do us now that Jesus has returned to heaven? In fact, 
What ultimate good did it do for those whom he healed in the first century? Yes, Jesus healed a multitude of people from their diseases, and they were grateful in that moment. But every single one of them would grow sick again and die. Yes, Jesus did deliver people from the bondage of spiritual darkness by casting out demons. But what ultimate good would that do them if they had to stand before Almighty God on Judgment Day and give an account for their own lives, standing clothed only in their own filthy rags of sin? It's a serious question for us to contemplate. Beloved, nobody in hell is going to say, well, at least I had a few good years while I was in high school. This morning's passage presents the climatic miracle in this astonishing cycle of miracles. This is the passage which makes clear the main goal of all the miracles that Jesus was performing. This is the passage which makes clear that the wonders that Christ was doing were not only for the good of those whom he healed, protected, and delivered, but that Christ's miracles in the first century are really good news for us who gather here to worship him in the 21st century. We are going to look at this portion of God's word under five main headings. First, four desperate men. Second, Jesus provokes a crisis. Third, a surprisingly tricky question. Fourth, the authority of the Son of Man. And fifth, they still don't get it. Let me give you those five points again. First, four desperate men of faith. Second, Jesus provokes a crisis. Third, a surprisingly tricky question. Fourth, the authority of the Son of Man. And fifth, they still don't get it. We begin with four desperate men. Having cast out a legion of demons, Jesus gets back in the boat, crosses over the sea, and goes back to Capernaum, his adopted home. Now, when I think of my home, I think of a place of rest, a place where I get renewed for life, a place of joy with my wife. But we already know enough about Jesus that going home is not going to give him rest from the crowds. The only way that Jesus gets rest from now on from the crowds is by getting in a boat and going out to sea or by slipping off into the wilderness by himself. And so Jesus returns home and the crowds swamp around his house. Now, Matthew only narrates the direct details of Jesus interacting with these four men, the paralytic and the scribes. But Mark and Luke tell us more details. Mark tells us this. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And Jesus was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now try to put yourself in the situation of this young paralytic. 
I say young, the ESV, a very excellent translation, has Jesus tenderly addressed this man as my son. Uh, But the Greek actually doesn't use the word for son, it uses the word for child, which suggests that this paralytic was actually probably still young, the oldest maybe in his teens, but probably even younger than that. Perhaps this young person had come to accept his incredibly difficult circumstances in life. You know, we actually do adjust to things, things that we didn't imagine in advance that we could. And so when his friends come to him and say, we're going to bring you to Jesus, so Jesus will heal you, it wouldn't be surprising if he's thinking, my friends are letting their hopes get the better of their judgment. I mean, after all, paralytics don't simply rise up and walk. On the other hand, perhaps he had heard enough about Jesus, but he had a glimmer of hope himself. If these stories he's hearing about Jesus are true, remember, he's not walking around following Jesus, he's a paralytic. But if the stories he's hearing about Jesus are true, perhaps this is God's man, God's prophet, who has the power by God's grace to heal him of his paralysis. Matthew tells us that Jesus saw their faith. This clearly and unambiguously refers to the four men who bring the paralytic. Whether or not it refers to the young man or young child on the stretcher, we just can't say for sure. In fact, we have to wonder a bit about exactly what the faith is that Jesus sees. It's not a fully formed faith. Obviously, they believe that Jesus could heal him. That's faith. Uh, I think it's almost certain that they also had faith In Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God who is gracious and merciful to his people. But please keep in mind that they didn't come to Jesus with a type of faith that would allow them to be admitted into communicant membership in a church today. I mean, they didn't have all the information we do. But they weren't coming thinking, well, this Jesus we're going to is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. I mean, after all, they don't come to worship Jesus They come to Jesus bringing their friend, thinking he's a prophet. A prophet who can heal. Probably very much in the lines of Elijah or Elisha, who also do these astonishing healing miracles in the Old Testament. They they would have thought that Jesus was the unique man, perhaps, as a prophet in this day. Elevating him in their own thoughts to be like Elijah and Elisha. That was enough for them. But beloved, that was not enough For Jesus. Jesus, therefore, provokes a crisis. He says to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven you. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. That is precisely the crisis that Jesus intends to bring about in their thinking. Jesus is making clear that the point of the multitude of miracles that he was performing wasn't that God suddenly wanted to heal a lot of people. The miracles were signs. They were signs that pointed to Jesus, to who he is, and to what he had come to accomplish. Jesus was God's man. A prophet, yes, but more than a prophet. Jesus is the one who would come 
to save his people from their sins. Our Lord's words, your sins are forgiven, are in the present tense. As R.T. France points out, this is a performance utterance. I wonder how many of you are familiar with that expression, that idea, a performance utterance. It means in the very act of saying something, the words accomplish what they say. Uh, We're familiar with this from weddings. You know, after a couple takes their vows, when a minister says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, they legally become husband and wife. The declaration is not, not only a celebration, it actually brings about the very thing it declares. That's what Jesus is doing here. Right? Jesus is giving a performance utterance. He says to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus is not merely stating a fact. He is there and then forgiving this young young man's sin on the basis of his own authority. The scribes, being experts in the law, recognize that no mere man can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. But truth be told, you don't have to be an expert in the law to know that. Uh, Any moderately faithful Jew knew that only God can forgive sins. Who exactly does this Jesus think that he is? By the way, here's a surprising fact. Um, This is the very first time in the gospel, according to Matthew, that there is a conflict between the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus. Uh, That, of course, is going to go on and it's going to escalate all the way up until his death, where the religious leaders will trump up charges against Jesus. Actually, the very same charge. When they go to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, they say, according to our law, this man must die. It is because he is blaspheming. That's your trumped-up charge. It's not true, but but that's what's going to continue throughout the Gospels. Um, They're not quite there yet. This conflict is going to continue to grow, but they're not quite there yet. Matters haven't gone that far. We do not see the scribes picking up stones in order to execute Jesus on the spot. But the claim that Jesus is blaspheming is already starting to point in that direction. After all, Leviticus chapter 24 tells us this. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. And that's the charge they're starting to bring against Jesus. And I remind you that Jesus stirred up this crisis. He wanted them to stop thinking that he was just a prophet and to put before them quite boldly his claim that he was more than a prophet. Why is Jesus provoking this crisis in those who have gathered in and around his house? Well, he wants to push them further in their understanding of who he is. And so Jesus begins by asking a surprisingly tricky question. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. Verses 4 and 5. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, rise up and walk. We note in passing 
that the scribe's bewilderment over Christ's dazzling claim to forgive the paralytic sins is not treated by Jesus, though it's a neutral and understandable mistake. Please pay attention to that. Jesus isn't saying they're confused. Jesus says, why do you think evil in your hearts? See, these men are supposed to be experts in God's law. Do mu- whom much is given, much is also required. Or as James will later put it, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. These men who spent their lives studying the law of God should have at least recognized that Jesus was a true prophet come from God and therefore be terrified to put Jesus under their own judgment. More than that, they should have recognized Christ's miracles as signs that he was God's Messiah, who had come with unique authority to usher in the kingdom of God. Um, There's actually an exact but antithetical, that is opposite, parallelism between these scribes and the four men, the friends who bring the paralytic to Jesus. With the friends, Jesus sees their faith. With the scribes, Jesus sees the evil that is in their hearts. It does not matter that the faith of the friends here is less than fully formed or imperfect. Should note in passing, all of our faith is imperfect. No, no matter how long you've walked with Jesus. It does not matter that the faith of the paralytic's friends is not fully formed. It is fitting that Jesus would display his astonishing power to those who trust him partially and imperfectly. Now, some commentators, in my judgment, go too far. They, they say that Jesus heals the man because of their faith. I think that's a mistake. After all, it's grace. Grace is not merited. It's God's sovereign gift to us. Right? So the, the faith of these men doesn't merit Jesus healing their friend. It definitely doesn't merit Jesus forgiving their sins. But perhaps we could say it's fitting that those who trust Jesus, at least in part, are the avenue by which Jesus makes a far greater point about his own power. should say, perhaps, uh, this is not a unique situation here uh, in terms of Jesus simply taking the initiative to heal someone. I, I think evangelicals in general get a little bit nervous about the idea of anyone's sins being forgiven apart from faith. Because we know that God's ordinary means of justification is he justifies us by faith. But please realize that this passage is not designed to tell us about the paralytic. It's designed to tell us about Jesus and his astonishing authority. And we should remember the previous miracle Jesus did when he cast a legion of demons out of these men was not because these demon-possessed men believed in him. He simply, out of his own grace and power, exercised that power for their good by delivering them. In fact, I trust that most of you realize that the reason why you believe at all is because God, out of his free grace, changes your heart first. See, God's grace is not dependent on your faith. Your faith is dependent on God's grace. 
The partial and imperfect faith of the friends merits neither the miraculous healing nor the forgiveness of this man's sins. But it does perhaps make it fitting that Jesus would bless this paralytic in order to make his greater point. By contrast, the willingness of the scribes to rush to ascribing blasphemy to Jesus is not merely an honest mistake. It reveals that their hearts were bent toward evil rather than toward the living God. And so Jesus poses a surprisingly tricky question. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? On the surface, the answer is obvious. It's much easier to say your sins are forgiven, because nobody looking on can tell whether or not that actually happens. Right? So in that sense, it's much easier to do. After all, if Jesus says, rise up and walk, and the paralytic remains a paralytic, his claim to such authority will be immediately and embarrassingly falsified. Indeed, given that the scribes are accusing Jesus of blasphemy, if that fails, they might drag him before the Sanhedrin if they don't first pick up stones to execute him themselves. Nevertheless, given that we know the whole story, we should realize that it is far harder for Jesus to forgive this man his sins than to restore him to perfect health. See, Almighty God can heal people simply by the word of his own power. It doesn't cost him anything. I think back to the Old Testament. When Elijah, well, we want to say God, Elijah doesn't do it, but when Almighty God to Elijah raises up the son of the widow, doesn't cost Elijah anything at all. In fact, that astonishing display of God's power authenticates Elijah as being a true prophet. When the Lord uses Elisha to cure Naaman of leprosy, it doesn't cost Elisha anything at all. Elisha, by the way, doesn't even go out of his house. He sends his messenger out to Naaman. But what it does do when God displays that power is it authenticates Elisha as the man of God in all of Israel. Didn't cost him anything. But see, when Jesus looks at this paralytic and says, Son, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is committing to taking all the guilt of this man upon himself and to going to the cross and suffering God's holy wrath against the sins that that man deserved. And let us be clear, the, the wrath that we all deserve for our guilt in our place. It is obviously harder to say to the paralytic, rise up and walk, but the forgiving of this man's sins and our sins is infinitely harder to actually do. The unique thing about Jesus among all the true prophets of God is that Jesus had the authority within himself to forgive sins. Not merely, maybe that's the wrong word, but I'm going to keep, stick with it here, not merely to declare that God is forgiving your sins, as I have the privilege of doing every Sunday morning on the basis of God's word, but to declare this man's sins were forgiven 
on his own authority in the place of God himself. In fact, the reason why Jesus performed such a vast multitude of healing miracles was so that these miracles would serve as signs so that we would all know right down to the present day that Jesus Christ has this unique authority and he uses this authority for our good. Verse 6. Jesus continues, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. What Jesus commands the paralytic to do will serve as proof that Jesus has the far more awesome authority to forgive your sins. Here is the main point that Jesus has been driving towards. His miracles make clear that he, the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins. But this raises a little small question. Why does Jesus refer to himself here as the Son of Man? Why doesn't he simply say, I, yes, I have the authority on earth to forgive sins? And the answer is this. It is all about authority. Back in Daniel, um, back in the book of Daniel, we see an astonishing vision about the Son of Man. Daniel tells us this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you have that vision? See, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man as a way of declaring the awesome authority that he alone possesses. Jesus is the one whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall never be destroyed. Now, it turns out that the Son of Man is our Lord's favorite self-designation. Please remember every time you hear it, this is not a claim to humility. I'm just a human being. This is a claim to awesome authority to being the king of kings and the lord of lords who will reign forever. And Jesus is making clear that he not only holds vast authority beyond that of any mere human being who will ever live, Jesus is making clear that he will use that authority for the good of his people. See, see that's how these, this miracle and this healing comes together with his authority. Unlike the multitude of rulers in this world who have vast authority, Jesus has absolute authority, and he uses it for your good. Now, of course, such a claim, without any proof, would be nearly impossible to believe. So Jesus demonstrates his authority by saying to this young man, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
verses 7 and 8. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. The crowds were not only amazed at Christ's authority, they were afraid because of Christ's authority. You'll recall, if you've been with us, this was the same response the disciples have in the boat when Jesus stills the storm. They start out being afraid of the storm, but then they become even more afraid of the one who has this authority. What manner of man is this who can command the winds and the waves and they obey him? And yet, the crowds entirely missed the point. Though they are astonished, the crowd, not for the last time, entirely misses the point. Why do they glorify God? The stated reason is because God has given such authority to men. Please note the plural. Jesus heals the paralytic so that people will see that he, the Son of Man, has the authority to forgive sins. This is not an authority given to men in general. Jesus is the only man in all of history who possesses this unique authority. So why do the crowd say men? I think the best explanation is also the simplest. They are focusing on the healing miracle rather than on Christ's claim to forgive this man's sins. In support of this, we never throughout the gospel see the crowds coming in mass seeking Jesus to forgive their sins. Instead, they keep coming to him seeking healing. They seek supernatural bread from heaven, but they don't seek their own forgiveness, and they do not worship him. They do not recognize that Jesus is God come in the flesh. The plural men almost certainly means that they are lumping Jesus in with the same category of the other great prophets, Moses, Elijah, Elisha. And in doing so, they probably think they're ascribing to him great glory. But until we see that Jesus Christ is in a category of one all by himself, we have not yet begun to grasp the wonder of the incarnation. The crowd had seen the miracle, but they totally missed the sign. They missed the purpose of the miracle, pointing to who Jesus is and the authority that he exercises on behalf of his people. And so they returned to their homes talking about the amazing things they had seen, but without telling anyone that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. What about you? Who do you say that this Jesus, the Son of Man, truly is? And are you living in such a way that is consistent with what you say. Amen.